progressing into the night. And as it does so, the mood continues to dim. It's dimming into the darkness. You think about what has gone on. The chief priests are conspiring to kill Jesus. We've heard of uh, Judas the betrayer. We've had a meal in which Jesus is once again pointing to his imminent death, a death that would indeed be a substitute sacrifice for the sins of his people. And the body uh, of Jesus uh, symbolized in the bread and the blood in the cup. And yet this mood is dark. It's, it's, it's dimming. And yet Matthew, the writer, the story, is providing for us uh, candles of hope that flicker. It's dark for sure. But if you notice in the story, there's always some phrases and points that Matthew is recording that gives us some glimmer of hope. And we'll see that again today, that we're entering into the story right in the middle of it. We'll sense the darkness of the moment. But the wonderful thing about each of these passages, I've already said, is that we can expect to find these these little candles that flicker, that provide some semblance of hope. And I want you to know this morning, right from the outset, that this candle flickers, providing hope for those who have fallen. Hope for those who failed. Hope for those who struggle as disciples, who struggle as sinners, right? Who trip and fall. So if you're here today, maybe feeling the effects of some previous tripping and falling, if you're here today and there are aspects or even the totality of your life has been a constant stumbling, and if you're here today, if you're wrestling with sin and you feel that, that the wonderful news today is in the midst of this darkness, the candles that burn and flicker and give us hope to be restored. Amen? So listen to what Matthew says in Matthew 26, 31-35. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered them, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, that would nourish us, encourage us, and strengthen us. Use your word in our life to conform us to the image of your Son and give us hope, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
A couple of passages ago, we took a look at the story regarding the betrayal of Jesus. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He looked at all 12 of them and he said, one of you will betray me. One of you, my very own disciples, will betray me. Now, you know, you do a little math and you think, well, we still got 11 to 12, right? We still got 11 guys. That's a football team, right? We still got 11, 11 to 12. What is that? Where are the mathematicians? Is that like 92.5%? Does that sound right, engineers? All the lock heaters? It's, it's not bad. It's an A minus. We still got 11, right? But the radical thing that Jesus says in this passage is this. He looks at all the disciples and he says, you will all fall away on account of me this night. Every single one of you. Not one of you is exempt. You will all fall away because of me. This night, you will stumble over me. You will have a lapse in your loyalty. You will have a lapse in your trust and faith in me. You will stumble into sin and be overcome by fear. All of you, tonight, that's going to happen. You'll see all that I'm enduring. You'll respond to my arrest and my suffering and all that, and you won't know what to do. You're all going to fall because of me. Tonight, hours from now, we're counting minutes at this point. This is hard. This is a harsh word for the disciples to hear. Every single one of you, not just one of you, all of you. You may not betray me in the same way that Judas is going to. But the disease of disloyalty is contagious. And it is spreading. And it will infect every one of you. Yes, even you, my closest friends and my disciples. Could you imagine hearing Jesus saying this to you if you were in that room? If you had interacted with him and witnessed all that he had done, if you had left behind your family and your job and all of that, and now in this moment on the heels of hearing about a betrayal, you are now hearing that you, yes, you, would fall away because of him this night. How would you respond to that? What basis? You might be like put back, hey, on what basis? Would you say this, Jesus? How do you know? Well, Jesus knows everything, right? Jesus knows everything. He knows what's happening right now to him. He's fully aware. He's taking each step in the midst of his passion, and he's fully aware of what's taking place, how it's going to take place, why it's taking place. He is fully aware, and he knows the Scriptures, and he knows the Scriptures really well. He knows the prophets. And Jesus gives basis for this hard news. He says in Zechariah 13, 7, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will scatter. 
I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will scatter. He quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And when he does that, he's identifying him and the disciples in this prophetic word. He's saying, I'm the shepherd of the flock. And I'm being struck. You are the sheep of the flock. And when the shepherd is being struck, the sheep are going to scatter. And don't miss that word that who's the subject of this statement in this prophetic um, reference. It says, I will strike the shepherd. It's the word of the Lord speaking. That it is the Father who is striking the shepherd. Right Again, this underscores and highlights what not just what is taking place, but what is going on beneath that. That God continues to be at work, sovereignly bringing about the fulfillment of every one of His promises and carrying out His plan to save sinners. The Father is crushing the shepherd. That's what's taking place right now. That's what you're about to witness with your own eyes, disciples, and it will overwhelm you. It will overtake you. And you may not realize it at this time. But the truth is, when that occurs, the sheep of the flock will scatter. You will see all that is happening to me, and you will run for your lives. You will scatter every single one of you. It's an amazing thing to think about, right? Just for a moment. You think, what brought these ragtag group of fishermen and and have-nots together in these last three years. It was Jesus. Jesus united them together. The These 12 men, right? The unifying factor was Christ. If it were not for Jesus, these men would have no interest to come together. They would have no reason to come together and become a community of people. And so the idea is that Jesus has this way of bringing people together. And if you take Jesus away from the disciples, you no longer have the unifying factor that brings them together. So if the shepherd is struck, guess what? There is nothing keeping these twelve together. You think about this local congregation 2,000 years later. You wonder what brings us together here this morning. What unites us? Is it just a collective concept like, hey, if you're really bored on a Sunday, you can go to that uh, small little oversized shed in the middle of residential North Syracuse and just kind of hang out and sing some songs? Like, that's insanity. What brings us here is Together, what unites us as a people from different backgrounds, from different experiences, from different economic statuses, from different uh, ethnicities, what brings us together is Jesus. If it weren't for Jesus, we would not be here, would we? And so Jesus is struck. And what is the inevitable result of the shepherd being struck? The scattering. What brought them together was struck. And they ran for their lives. And on the heels of these hard words, listen to what Jesus says. 
and I don't want you to miss it, that wonderful adversative conjunction. That's English, y'all. That wonderful word, but. It's, we see it in Ephesians 2, right? One of our favorite passages. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's a reality that is undeniable. And then, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love that He loved us, made us alive together when we were dead in our sins. Right? That, that adversative conjunction, that twist in the story This word, here it is again. You're all going to scatter. You're all going to run for your lives. You're all going to fall away. But, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Please, this is what I was hoping for in my own life, in your life, that as we walk through this passion narrative, we would slow down enough to be able to see these wonderful little nuggets of gospel grace, these wonderful little candles in the darkness of the story that we're going to miss out on if we don't slow down and look at it. And here it is. Here it is. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Don't miss it. We see Jesus talking about the resurrection. Yes, Jesus is being struck. But here's the wonderful news of the gospel. He is alive. Amen? He rose from the grave. On the other side of His suffering is glory. And on the other side of death is life. Resurrection life. On the other side of defeat is this vindicating victory over death. After I'm raised. After the tables are turned on this story. Right on the other side of Christ's passion is so much promise. I want you to see that this morning. John Nolan said it this way, The coming disaster is not allowed the last word. Some of you need to hear that this morning. The coming disaster is not allowed the last word. And so here we are. We find where fallen sinners can grab a hold of hope. It's in what Christ said. It's in His promise. Fallen sinners find hope in the certainty of Christ's promise. If you miss everything else this morning, don't miss that. Fallen sinners find hope in the certainty of Christ's promise. And right there, Jesus tells them, but after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Don't miss it. They will all fall away. But Jesus promises that He would appear to them alive. Jesus promises that He would regather them, all those who had been scattered. Jesus promises that He would do all that was necessary to restore them from this temporary falling away. Amen? That's what Jesus promises to do. I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to reassure you of my presence and the effectiveness of my saving work. I'm going to restore you who have fallen. Do you hear that word this morning? Don't miss that. Fallen sinners find hope in the certainty of Christ's promise. In your weakness this morning, in your falling, in your failing, hear the promise of Jesus. Know without a shadow of a doubt 
that Jesus is alive. He promised to be raised. He promised to regather. And He was faithful. If you read the story, you know that. He was faithful. And He will be faithful to every single one of us who turns to Him in faith and simply receives the promise, I will go before you to Galilee. I will restore you who have fallen away from Me. Trust in His promise this morning. Trust in nothing else. Turn to Him. It's sweet. It's good. It's wonderful. And it's real. He's victorious over the grave. He has defeated Satan's sin and death. And He simply promises to restore us back to Himself. And we simply need to trust in that and receive it this morning. Can you hear that today? There's where your hope is. O fallen sinner. O struggling saint. It is in the word, this, his, this victory over the grave and this promise that Jesus gives you that He will restore you. Trust in Him today. It's your only hope. It's your only hope. And after hearing this prediction and promise, how did the disciples respond? Well, you know, Peter. <laughs> Peter's quick to speak up. You know, he'll represent the twelve. You know, he'll, he'll push his chest out a little bit. He's always got something to say. I don't know. I don't really identify with him much at all. You know? I don't know about you. He struggles with things I know nothing about. You guys? Right? What does he say? Hey, Jesus, appreciate it. Here's the deal. You can quote Zechariah all you want. But though all these people, I don't know what these people are going to do. These, these other ten guys. Who knows? I mean, I can't predict what they're going to do. But here's what I'm saying, Jesus. I will never fall away. I will never do that. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He's comparing himself. He's assessing his own zeal level, his own level of commitment. And he's, he's taking inventory. He's like, I don't know what's going on in these guys and what they're thinking. I can't really vouch for them. But I can tell you what, what I know. I, I can tell you, uh, I, can, I can convey my commitment to you, Jesus. There's no way that's happening. I will never do it. It's not going to happen. Jesus hears that, and what does He say? In that classic formula, truly, I say to you, that's like the sign for, hey, listen up, bro. Like, listen. This is true. I know what you're, I, I hear you, but listen up. Truly, I say to you, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You read commentators on this, and they're a little bit all over the place. Could be the next morning. But really, the crowing of the rooster was in the middle of the night. So you think we're, en we're approaching the night, and this is like in the first watch of the night. And so we're talking hours now, 120 minutes. You are getting all fired up, Peter. You're expressing your zeal. But understand this, we're minutes and hours away from the fact that you will deny me. It's getting, he's getting more specific. You're going to deny me, not once, not twice, but three times before the rooster crows. 
Peter, you're not just going to run from me. You're going to reject me. Peter, having an opportunity to hear the word of Christ, he doubles down. Truly, he says, no, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And we see it's not just Peter, right? All the disciples say the same. And in some ways now we see what's happening. We have the conflict of two contrasting words. We have what Jesus says is going to happen. We have a promise from Him. And now we have a contrasting promise from Peter. I'll never do that. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. It's not going to happen. That's the issue that's coming into the forefront of this passage. Two words, two promises, two wills. Which one will prevail? Which will, which promise, which word can we trust here as his disciples? In some ways, I feel like that is a simple summation of discipleship. Which word, which promise will we trust? Whose word, whose will will prevail in our lives? That's what we see taking place. We begin to think a little bit about what's behind Peter's word, Peter's promise to Jesus. Well, it's so many things we could think about here. But I think I'll just go to the most obvious in my mind. What's behind Peter's word and his promise is some form of pride. And what does the proverb say? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Some form of pride is welling up inside him. Peter's pride overestimates his sufficiency to resist death. He overestimated his sufficiency to resist sin. He overestimated his commitment, his fervor, his capacity, his loyalty. He overestimated it when he looked at Jesus and said, never. When we say never, I will never, I feel like that puts us at least potentially, at least probably, in a vulnerable position. I will never do that. Right? I've been saying for 43 years, I will never invite someone into my home that is rooting for the opposing team against the Steelers. It is never happening. Doesn't mean I don't love you. Doesn't mean that we can't be friends. It just means that we don't watch football together. Do you understand me? And then two weeks ago, out of the kindness of my own heart, I invited the Dailies over to watch the Eagles play the Steelers. For my own pride, I guess, to build up my own sense of 
righteousness. I don't know. Be careful when you say never. Be careful when you say, I'll never be a pastor. I'll never be a church planner. Never. I'm never giving in to the Christian bubble pressure to send my kid to a high-priced liberal Christian college. That's my whole life now. Because I sent my oldest to Cedarville, which we are so glad to do so. Be careful when you say never. Or how about this one? I'll never commit that sin. I'll never do that. No. No, I love Jesus too much. I would never commit that sin. I would never. Peter overestimates his capacity to resist sin. He also underestimated his need to simply rely on Christ's promise. It's almost like they missed it all together. I'm never going to... They don't talk about what Jesus said, after I'm raised, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. It's like they don't, even, they don't even hear that. They're so confounded. I would never do that. They miss on the, the wonderful grace that was provided to them. Just listen to the promise. Don't, don't exert and exude self-sufficiency in, in a will that is capable of doing something that you, that you are unable to do apart from Christ and His grace and His promise. That's what Peter did. He underestimated his need to simply rely on Christ's promise. Calvin said it this way, having no reliance on the promise, they advance with inconsiderate haste to boast of a constancy they did not possess. That's what they did. And so while fallen sinners find hope in the certainty of Christ's promise, uh, fallen sinners do not find any hope in the presumption of self-sufficiency. I can do it. I can do it. Or I won't ever be there. When we overestimate ourselves and and underestimate our need to rely on Christ's promises, we are susceptible to falling into sin. I want you to hear that this morning. I'm going to venture to say, maybe I'm going out on a limb, but we have a room that has at least a good amount of people that overestimate their spiritual capacity on a day-to-day basis. I would never. Not me. No way. We underestimate our capacity to fall in sin. Someone asked Billy Graham, I'm paraphrasing, at the end of his ministry, how did you do it? How did you minister for decades upon decades and never fall into disqualifying sin? How did you never fall? And he said something so simple, so powerful, and if maybe not unpackaged a little bit, maybe could be easily misunderstood, but I think there's a beautiful nugget of truth here. He said, I was so scared. I was so scared. He said it twice. What's behind that? He knew what he was capable of. And it made him scared. Right? Not like scared like, oh, but the sense of appropriate anxiety about the fact that, man, if, I, if I'm not resting in, relying upon, if I'm not fleeing from, if I'm not running away, if I'm not intentionally... Uh, 
uh, uh, pushing these kinds of things away and seeking the Lord, relying upon Him, I'm going to make an absolute mess of my life, my marriage, and my ministry. Doreen and I have talked about this over the last 20 years. I, I live with a constant sense that I'm two steps away from ruining everything. I think there's probably some unhealth there, but I think there's some health there too. That we live with an awareness that we have a capacity to fall, to trip, to stumble. We are really good at sinning. And that we don't have the strength on our own to remain faithful and endure. You don't have what it takes, saint, on your own. You need Christ. Your only hope is Christ. Turn away from your will. Turn away from your word in your promise, in your, your fervor and zeal. Don't put your assurance and trust in yourself at all. Put all your hope and trust and assurance in the promise and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Don't neglect prayer. Stop making excuses while you're too busy to spend time in the Word, feasting upon it. Daily, constantly. Don't assume you have in yourselves what it takes to remain faithful. But I wonder if there's some here as well that overestimate our fall and underestimate Christ's promise. It's a different kind of pride, isn't it? It's a pride that self-shames, that makes sin, their sin the ultimate defining reality. It's all about their sin and their struggle and their shame and their falling and their failing. It's the, the pride of self-pity. It's all about you, your sins, your struggles. And you, 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 you think in, about yourself and, and about Christ and you say things like this. I've fallen too often. I've fallen too far. I'm not good enough. God or Christ would never restore me. He doesn't have enough grace for me. He doesn't have enough resurrection power to raise my life and pick me up. I'm too far. I'm too bad. I'm not good enough. Not me. Not all of us live with an overestimation of our capacity. Some of us live with an underestimation of Christ's power to heal, Christ's power to forgive, Christ's power to restore, Christ's power to raise us up from the dead. Amen? So don't overestimate yourself and don't underestimate the person and the promise of Jesus. Hear it. Receive it. Rest in it. There is no fall too far for Jesus that He cannot grab you and lift you up and place you on a rock. Amen? Amen. He's so gracious. He's so willing to restore us as we turn to Him and trust solely in His promise. And so in the darkness of this story as it continues, we might think that each passage is like kind of stumbling through a dark cave. But in some ways we see that all that Jesus is enduring is not into a dark cave, but actually 
a dark tunnel. And it is lit along the way by candles. And at some point, the light, we're just going to be out in the, when, when Jesus is raised. He's leading us through this. There's hope in the midst of how hard this is. So understand this. In the darkness of the story, in your battle against sin, in this life, there is a candle of hope that flickers for you, O fallen sinner. It's not in yourself. It's not anything this world would ever offer you. It is only in Jesus Christ, His person, His work, and the certainty of the promises He gives to us as His people. Amen? Rest in that, O fallen one, O struggling saint. Receive, rejoice, rejoice. That's why we sing that sweet song together that we're about to sing in a few moments. He will hold me fast. I love this last, one of the last kind of stanzas, if you will, says, He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. How? We're in the suffering. Bought by Him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Amen? That's what He said. You're all going to fall away on account of me this night. But, after I am raised from the dead, I will go before you to Galilee. Don't miss the hope in the midst of this dark story. Fallen sinners, find hope in the certainty of Christ's promise. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Let's pray. Father, thank you this wonderful word. We praise you for Christ. His truth, His love, His loyalty to the plan of salvation. Christ has done it. All praise and glory be Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in each one here, strengthening those who are weak, lifting up those who have stumbled, and grabbing a hold of those who have fallen, and picking them up and restoring them by your infinite mercy, according to your perfect Give us hope. Enable us to trust in your promise, not in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Good. This time we turn to the Lord's Supper together. We, the people of God, have this incredible privilege of being reminded of promises and Christ's faithfulness to keep those promises, to fulfill those promises. I read this a couple weeks ago. I'm going to read it again because I think it once again hammers home this idea of how Christ's suffering included his being betrayed, his being uh, rejected, and even denied by those who were close to him. Listen to what Isaiah 53 says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. 
Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Amen? If you're here today and you've placed your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've trusted in His promises, those promises have been applied to you by faith, and also you have been baptized into Christ's church, we encourage you, we invite you to come forward and receive from the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to encourage our servers to come forward. Uh, They are going to be on each side. Of course, we have the bread and the cup, the bread symbolizing that broken body of Jesus, and also the cup symbolizing his blood. Right? As we emphasized last week, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. You talk about a new covenant promise that we now have uh, by just simply trusting in Christ. It is the forgiveness of every one of our sins. Amen? So we come in faith, we come in hope, and we come expectantly and knowing that we receive all that Christ has promised to us. But before I invite you to come forward, let's say one short prayer together as we approach the table. Father, again, we praise you for your provision, your provision in Christ. Enable us now by your spirit to receive with thanksgiving. May we do so, considering our sin, turning away from it, and once again trusting in Christ alone. May you give us hope and joy with the anticipation that we will one day share this with you at your table at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Give us this love, give us this gratitude, and give us this hope as we approach together as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and come forward and receive together.